Will we see this common phrase, perhaps the gold standard of phrases, become obsolete due to new technology? Welcome, my mere modelites, to another round of the Mere Models book reviews. My name is Kyron, and I do these reviews for those who want to transcend beyond their own mere mortality to get deeper into the philosophy, into the interesting, juicy parts of the books that they're reading. And we do have a very exciting one today. It is The Bitcoin Standard by Saif Dean Amous. This book was originally published in 2018, although I have the 2021 updated version. And it's about 275 pages in length. And each page, the writing on it itself isn't super dense. So it doesn't take a super long time to get through. The book itself is a mix between the history of money and then also the properties of money. So you're really going to get an idea more about what money is than anything else from this book. However, it is also the backdrop for this new form of purely digital money called Bitcoin and why in comparison to cows, shells, gold, and even fiat, it is much, much better. Now, there's 10 chapters in this book and I'll read out a couple of them so you can get an idea of what they uh, are talking about. So, chapter one, money. Chapter two, primitive monies. Chapter three, monetary metals. Chapter four, government money. Chapter five, money and time preference. Chapter six, capitalism's information system. Chapter seven, sound money and individual freedom. And then this is the part where it starts getting onto Bitcoin. Chapter eight, digital money. Chapter nine, what is Bitcoin good for? And chapter 10, Bitcoin questions. So, you can see, you know, seven tenths of the book is related to actual money and the history of money. And then the last three chapters are really diving deep into Bitcoin and analyzing it from this perspective that has already been created beforehand. Now, who was Safety in a Moose and why is this book, you know, interesting? What's some characteristics of it? Safety is an economics professor. He's obviously still alive today because this book was only published a couple of years ago. And you could even say this is the gold standard book on Bitcoin. And this is the reference I was making to at the start, the phrase gold standard, which implies this is the you know amazing, this is the rock solid example of something beautiful. Maybe that'll change if the Bitcoin standard actually gets adopted. But anyway, this book is what you'll really hear about in Bitcoin circles as being, if you want a book explaining Bitcoin, this is the one to go to. So, Uh, The book itself is mostly writing, although he does have a fair few pages in here with some graphs and uh, additional like data points showing, you know, the inflation showing how much the stock to flow certain um, monetary policies have. This one's the price of commodities and gold and US dollars in a log scale from 1792 to 2016, etc, etc. So he does use some visual elements in it but it is mostly writing. And he comes from the Austrian point of view, the Austrian economic school of of thought. So that's the, I suppose, point of view that he's coming from when he wrote this book. Going on to the themes, the first one is money. What is it actually? So this is what you're really going to get when you dive into this book. And what is its purpose and pro- primarily the three functions that it has. So he explains these in the very first chapter. So um, that first chapter is if you're wondering what to think about the book, that's a fantastic one to read because he, he really just nails it on the head. So the three functions that we have are medium because medium of exchange. So this is where you could be thinking like, oh, okay, a money could serve something like a token. So this is if you're playing your favorite video game, there's tokens within that game for you to acquire items and things like that. 
So that's a property of money. And then we also have currencies. So currencies I can use in a more real sense because I can buy a book with it or a microphone or some clothes or things like that. So it's being able to exchange different uh, things that we value and also being able to exchange my time and effort for, you know, material things or vice versa, the material things I have for other people's time and effort. So that's one of the functions. Store of value. So this is where you could say it's being able to capture energy uh, that's sort of expanded over time and, and to capture it into something more physical rather than, you know, kilojoules. So if you're thinking of something like fish, you could maybe try and use fish as money, but fish rots after a while. So the fish that I have is not going to be a great store of value in two weeks time because, you know, people aren't particularly going to want it. Whereas something like gold, which doesn't rot, it doesn't decay, you know, that will hold its value longer over time. Now, over a super, super long span, it seems that most currencies and most uh, things that have been used as money aren't that great at, at storing value. But, you know, in the shorter term and sort of the, you know, 50, uh, 50 years and less, this is where it's it's rock solid. And, you know, I can depend on the Australian dollar roughly being equivalent to value in a month's time as, as I do right now. Although, as we see with some hyperinflationary currencies, this is not the case everywhere in the world. The last one is unit of account. So this is where the pricing is is all the same. So when I'm in Australia, more or less everywhere is going to be using Australian dollars. And so I can know, okay, this book in comparison to this lamp, yeah, I can see, okay, what the pricing difference is between them. And I can get a real understanding of where things value and how other people value things. So if I'd never seen a Lamborghini before, and then I'd never seen a pencil before, the pricing is great if it's, you know, uniform and is a unit of account, I can sort of see, okay, <laughs> people seem to uh, uh, want this Lamborghini more than they want this pencil. And so you, it's, a, it's great for decision making as well. Now, so those are the, the three main functions, but money itself has many, many more properties. So some of these, I'll just list them off, uh, a high stock to flow. So this is where the actual money itself isn't being diluted too much. So if you think of gold, only another 2 to 3% of gold is actually added to the current stockpile year on year. So this means that you can't just have a year where all the gold in the world is now doubled um, as it, we have kind of seen recently with some of the uh, crazy stuff going on after the COVID pandemic. Uh, fungible, so this is where it's sameness. So this money here is exchangeable for this money. They're identical. They can both be used. So one isn't valued slightly more than the other because maybe it has a pink color or anything like that. So no, it has the same fungibleness across everywhere. Uh, divisible, so this is where... You can have it in larger parts and smaller parts. So I can have $100 um, of of, uh, Australian money. I can have $1 and then I can break that even more. I can have it into cents. And then if you want to go below cents, it maybe is technically possible. I'm not sure actually. Um, But you need the money to be able to be divisible. So you can use it for high value items and low value items at the same time. Durable. So this is where like I was mentioning sort of with a store of value, you don't want a money which rots, uh, much like uh, a fun little fact when I was in Colombia. In, I went to Pablo, one of Pablo Escobar's um, houses in Guatapé and 
he used to store cash in the walls and then they would have to mentally or or on their balances discount about 10% of it each year because rats and mice would get into the walls and actually eat their money. So this obviously is is not super durable whereas something like gold which you know can't rot away like that is much more durable. Portable, so this is being able to carry it around. I can go to my friend's house with a bunch of money. I don't have to lug around a ton of gold on my back if I wanted to pay for you know that Lamborghini that I was valuing so highly before. And also counterfeit resistance. So this is where it can't be diluted, not through the natural mechanism of digging more gold from the ground, but I can't have some alchemists come in and just suddenly create a whole bunch more and then you know dilute the the value of it that way so money has a, a lot of properties i haven't even listed all of them here these are just some of the ones that really jumped out at me and then there's more the philosophical aspect as well so this is where it's getting more into what what do you want as money what perhaps people see it as in 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 like the the philosophical extent. So we could have something that's grounded in reality, like gold. It's physical atoms that are physically here on earth. And so there is only a, there's a real physical reality to it. I can't just walk out into the street and, you know, scoop a bunch of it up. No, I have to go exploring. I have to do some, you know, geolocation searching. I have to go into Papua New Guinea and I have to put in the time and effort to dig it out of the ground to refine it, etc., etc., etc. Whereas you could also have it being less grounded in reality and it's more on the principle of the the force of the government. How much do you believe in your government? So when the government prints money, that's not particularly grounded in reality. It's more grounded in how much faith I have in the government, in the Australian government as a whole for its handling of the Australian dollar. So you've got that, you've got trust and responsibility. How much responsibility do I want to have over my own money uh, versus it being handled by other people? So that's there's another aspect that you could add onto it. There's also the the time preference of it. So would I rather have a money which incentivizes me to hold on to it for the long term and to sort of extend my time preference out and this is called having a low time preference so in essence being able to say you know delay some gratification i won't spend it now i'll i'll save it for the future and you know i'll be able to uh use this in a more productive way uh, or you could have it where it's um, incentivizing you to, to spend it shortly because it's not going to be worth as much in two weeks time in 10 weeks time and this is where an example of say Venezuelans where they uh, actually even better one because there's a real life one that I got to experience in Argentina where my girlfriend at the time uh, she would get uh, pesos in, in Argentina for the work she did and immediately the next day it was okay we either have to spend this or we have to go convert this to US dollars because in a week's time, this isn't going to be worth as much. And how much that'll be, you know, who knows? I personally, while I was there, had a sort of eight-month gap from me being there and then me returning. And the the value of it had halved in that, in that essence. So 100 pesos wasn't worth 100 pesos anymore. It was, it was worth half of that. So this is where I suppose the belief in it is, is one of the most critical aspects of it. You really have to believe that your money 
is going to do what it's going to do. And if you don't have belief in that, I think that's when people start to shift away from that and and think of it less as a money anymore. No one really thinks of gold as a money because there's there's no real belief in it anymore as and it doesn't have the practical real life world example of people using it um, as as an exchange a medium of exchange um, uh, or as a unit of account although it still does have a, a store of value so this is the other thing to think about where money is is not just one thing you can't just poke at it and say this is money no it has certain characteristics certain properties some things are better more suited for this and people tend to gravitate towards that and then as, as new things arise or as maybe this old one uh, has some problems, i.e. seashells or, you know, limestone rocks or glass beads where it gets manipulated, it isn't used as much, more more people exist, so you, you can't have the portability of it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Things change and so money has to change as well. Now, the next theme that we're coming on to is Bitcoin. So this is a new technological innovation, invention, innovation as well, I should say. So this was first proposed in 2008 and then it actually came online in 2009. And you could say that the main breakthrough was digital scarcity. So this is being able to actually have something in electrons and atoms on the internet. You know, I, I barely know how the internet works, but having that uh, digital aspect and having something that's scarce there, i.e. it's not just a JPEG where you can right-click, copy, right-click, paste. And then also the solving of the Byzantine general problem, which is essentially arriving at consensus without a trusted third party. How can one actually do that? And and Bitcoin solved this. I won't get into how, he, uh, how the inventor, Satoshi Nakamoto, actually did that because that's that's sort of just too far out of the the realm for me and and for this review but you will find that in this book how how he actually went about doing that now how does bitcoin actually rate itself uh, on these properties that i was talking about before so if we just look at it high stock to flow ratio so this is where the increase of the bitcoin supply is eventually capped at 21 million and in the year 21 uh, I can't remember exact date, 2146, something like that. The The supply of it will all be exhausted. All of it will be out there in the wild. And so there's no more of it getting added as there is continually with gold to a certain extent to that, you know, 2 to 3% each year sort of thing. And then fiat money, which is just money printer go. And so some years you can just have a huge supply of it being thrown on. We can look at it in its fungible. Yes, it's sameness everywhere. One Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin for everyone. There's no difference between the two of them. Although, you know, maybe you could make some arguments of tainted Bitcoins, which have had a, a, a tainted history. Maybe um, there, there could be an aspect of where it isn't, not each Bitcoin is as fungible because people are looking at certain ones and saying that one's had a bad history because these people used to use it for drug running or something like that so you know for the most part it's fungible uh another one the divisible yes one bitcoin can be split into 100 million satoshis and i believe you can even go into milli satoshis if you really want to so that is possible durable obviously it's just electrons on the internet and it's more related to the amount of miners and nodes actually using it so as long as one node has the the bitcoin blockchain on it it is durable and so in this case 
yes, because it's spread out all, all over the world, um, you could say it's pretty pretty damn durable. Another one, portability, of course, super simple, the most portable of monies because it's not a physical thing. I, I don't have a Bitcoin here in my hands. It's stored in a an address which I can access via a set of, of uh, seed words. And so all I need to know is really, you know, the capacity to write something down on a piece of paper or have a, a set of 12 words in my head. So the most portable and counterfeit resistant. This one, I would also even go, mm, you know, if I'm totally new to Bitcoin and I'd never heard of it before and then someone was saying, oh, you know, here, accept this Bitcoin for this thing. And I didn't particularly know what it was. This is where you could maybe get a shit coin coming in and something masquerading as Bitcoin for the absolute newbie. But for those more in the know, you can say, okay, it's it's counterfeit resistant. You just can't go into the code and create another million Bitcoin just because you feel like it. It's it's rock solid and it's and it's written down in that that code which is less amenable to fuckery than than perhaps some other things uh, and then it may even add some properties of its own which weren't previously considered money before but maybe now should be such as immutability um, so we can see where every single transaction has, has come from I guess you know it, it and it's locked in stone there's no going back there's no taking back things it, it, it's always there the openness to all so all you need to have is a, an internet connection whereas to get Australian dollars in, and you're in Uganda, that's a pretty damn difficult thing. That's that's a lot harder. So it's, you know, there's still barriers to entry. Some places in the world still limit your ability to go onto an exchange and things like that. But I think you could pretty much agree it, if someone in Tibet was to spend, you know, right now instantly had to try and get some Aussie dollars, they're probably going to have an easier time getting Bitcoin than they are the Australian dollar. So there's that aspect. Uh, and then there's also things like the emergent market phenomena. So this is where it's it's being chosen by the people. It's not being you know forced down from above. So all of these things you can sort of ask these new properties, are these good or not? I would probably be leaning more towards, towards the side of yes, but you know you could make some arguments for the other case as well if you really wanted to. Then there's the philosophical points. And this is where perhaps... I think Bitcoin might struggle a little bit because there's some people who are, it's more getting into morals. So it's not, it's less about what, what the, you know, straight trade-offs are as in terms of, you know, if I look at some of these properties, I can compare gold and I can compare Bitcoin and I can say, yeah, Bitcoin beats it pretty much on every single property. Whereas when it gets into the philosophical slash moral stuff, this is where people get a little bit emotional and, and a little bit tied to their old ideas or even tied to their new ideas and not, not recognizing that um, this, this could perhaps be a bad thing. I, you know, communism seemed like a great idea, a new cool new idea. Look at you stupid people stuck in your feudalism and in your um, you know, royalty and, and that sort of stuff. And then it turned out to be not so great. So not every invention is amazing, although I'm not comparing <laughs> Bitcoin to, to communism either. So it's philosophical points. It's decentralized. So this is where, once again, it, it's not able to be fucked with by a single person or, you know, single entities. It, it The more it spreads out, the the less likely it is to be attacked or manipulated by 
a small group of individuals. There's the coder's law. So this is going more into sort of the mathematics versus the English language. You know, we have things written in law here in, in Australia and they're written in English, but language, if you've spent any time studying it, can be very slippery. Words don't necessarily mean one exact thing, whereas mathematics and code, that's a lot more rock solid. You, you can't, you can base... Uh, it's it's less likely to be manipulated per se. Um, so you've got that aspect of would you prefer something which is more mathematically inclined or do you prefer more the the beauty and the mm, somewhat slipperiness of, of human language and not just English but all of them. Then there's the immaculate conception part. So this is where it was saying it was really birthed from a nobody and a, an anonymous personal group and it spread out according to its own properties, according to its own um, ability to capture people. And the the idea behind it is so powerful that it's it it was sort of birthed from nothing and spread out. And there's a there's somewhat of a beauty to that as well. So it does have all these philosophical points, which uh, are in contrast to many of the mm, I suppose existing ones, which might put some people off as well. So. There we go. That's what money is and that is what Bitcoin is and in a rough nutshell. I haven't done it extreme justice, but you know, this is my best attempt. And then we'll go on to some of my own observations and takeaways. So what I learned from this book is probably the main takeaway that I took is that money can only be money. So this is, I think, the best example and the best reasoning that, reasoning that I've seen of why Bitcoin distinguishes itself from all of the other things calling for themselves cryptocurrencies, but they also have all of these additional things thrown on. Oh, we can do smart contracts. Oh, we can do, you know, NFTs and things like this. Whereas Bitcoin is, I only want to be a money. I don't want to fuck around with all of this other stuff. You know, you guys go over there, do your thing. Whereas I only want to be a money. And if you look at history, the, the best things of money are those that are only money. You don't want to be exchanging something which has utility because it really messes with the dynamics of, of the value of it. And so if you have copper and copper is super useful and then you know it starts to have even more utility, people want more of it. So they go and mine more of it. So it, it can... And and there can just be all sorts of problems that come from that. So this is where it's actually changed my own thinking and I've really started to say, okay, I'm only ever going to say cryptocurrency. I think there's value in some of these other ones, but not as a money, not as a, as a currency, whereas Bitcoin is the only one that is something that I could potentially see as being used as money in the future. So um, that that's beautiful. And it really explained to me how things like shells, which I'd never really understood before, like how, how the hell can a shell be a money? Uh, like what, how, you know, deluded, how stupid were all, all these older, you know, older generations when of course, as usual, it's, it's me who's being the stupid one and didn't realize, oh, they used it because it had these properties and these properties made it valuable. So that's that's really interesting and then it also the the side point which was a society obsessed with the producing of the money is unhealthy and so it's really highlighted to me as well that if i ever start to see you know society just become obsessed with mining bitcoin let's just put in all of our electrical energy to to mine it um that that's the sign of an unhealthy society and you need to have this balance between 
enough people being obsessed with it to to secure the network to make it valuable but not going too far as well um and and finding finding that balance point between them is a, a very interesting debate another one which is that the book itself is relatively simple but i also had a year's worth of study <laughs> so i've been investigating uh crypto currencies uh, i.e the one cryptocurrency bitcoin and then all the others uh, over the past year and I had learned a lot of things before reading this book. So I knew what mining was. I knew what, uh, you know, the the hashing algorithms were. I knew the sort of technical process of how one goes about uh, securing the network, acquiring a Bitcoin. What's the difference between a miner and a node? Like I had enough background knowledge to to read this book and go, okay, this was simple, brilliant coming at it with fresh eyes i'm not exactly sure it still could somewhat be overwhelming but like i mentioned most of the book is based upon the money aspect so you know seven tenths of the book is about what is money and how governments um you know the history of it what it is and how there's been i suppose negative aspects to some of the ideas related to keynesian economics related to you know etc etc so that was beautiful, but goddamn, there's still so many terms as well. I like I mentioned, I didn't list every single property. There's other things like saleability, hard and easy, um, the sound money, the the time preferences, what is investment, what is like it goes on and on. Uh, he writes in italics every time he introduces a a new concept or a new uh, idea, and man, this just. It, it it can somewhat be overwhelming in many ways. So one thing I would say is if you if you're reading this and you get overwhelmed by the terms and whatnot, don't don't feel too bad because uh, I had a bit of practice before leading into it, and I I, I still was like, dang, this is a, there's a lot of stuff in here. The last thing was uh, he writes in a very passionate manner, Mister Safety and Moose, and this is good in some ways and bad in others i'll write a i'll read out a little passage here which um i took from it uh so this is where he's talking about the keynesian point of view and so he says um just for example in in any sane society keynes ideas should have been removed from the economics textbooks and confirmed to the realm of academic comedy (laughs) but in a society where government controls academia to a very large degree the textbooks continue to preach the keynesian mantra that justified ever more money printing he does this a lot in the book so he has very strong ideas he has very strong points of views and he's obviously spent a lot of time teaching this sort of stuff learning about it over his lifetime he is an economics professor um it's funny there's some really funny parts where these people call calling people hucksters uh scammers and things like that but i i would also say it's not the most convincing of arguments as well funny definitely but also you know there's parts where you want some hard data and although he provides that for a large part of the book there's also parts where it definitely delves more into to his opinion and this is getting less away from the the properties and the you know sort of more analytical side of things and more into the philosophical and, and whatnot and that's great he can have his points of views but for me i i, I need also need the other viewpoint so I, I really probably need to read a book on keynesian economics and to compare it with this and go okay which one of these on the benefit is is more 
sound in a way, which has better arguments, which do I find more convincing. So far, this book convinced me a lot that the the Austrian point of view is better than the Keynesian, but you know, I'm, I, I haven't given the Keynesian point of view the eight hours that it took me to read this book, um, the, the, the same amount of time and whatnot. So there we go. Uh, I'm going to summarize it uh, and just say, if you're expecting a Bitcoin book, don't be surprised that most of the book is not on it. So it really cleared up some misconceptions I had uh, about money in general and was a really nice summary of, of what I mostly knew anyway. So all that research I'd done before, summed up into this book was was fantastic really cemented bitcoin as the only cryptocurrency but i still have practical and philosophical i suppose queries that uh, can only be solved through time to be honest using the network um, like i've got on my little shirt here with the fountain uh, app which i use a lot for myself i'm connected to podcasting 2.0 and the you know the lightning network and things like that uh, so that that sort of aspect of using it and then also external research on the the flip side of things i i think is uh is good all i can say at the moment is that bitcoin has really impacted my life and i can see the tremendous benefit that it could have and it it could have and hopefully does is happening in other parts of the world i remember in 2018 when i was with my girlfriend at the time and we were having that problem uh, of of her, you know, Argentinian pesos being debased and being useless or, or losing their value so quickly. If Bitcoin was a little bit more rock solid back then in terms of usability, i.e. we could go to um, a shop and, and use it and things like that, I would have been more amenable to using it back then. Uh, I wasn't and uh, it, it, it wasn't and I wasn't at the same time. So uh, unfortunately that didn't happen. But this is one of those examples where it's like, oh, this is a problem that could be solved and the solution is here. <laughs> so overall, I'm going to give the book uh, 7.5 out of 10, The Bitcoin Standard by Safety Namoose. Highly enjoyable. If you want to learn about Bitcoin, there's a damn good place to, to start off with. Thank you for joining me to this part of the audio, my mere mortalites. What are your thoughts on Bitcoin? Have you tried it out before? If not, I would suggest going over to the Fountain app, which I already mentioned, which is a podcasting app where you can listen to this audio, obviously, but also you can have a test around with Bitcoin, what it is, actually earn some within the app, and then you can pass that on to me through a Boostergram. So if you hit the boost button, you can send some of the, that Bitcoin my way as a, an appreciation for this. This is a value for value podcast. And so all the time, effort, energy I put into this, uh, I really do appreciate if you can send some of that back. And so it can be something like, uh, you know, talent, uh, treasure, sending me some Bitcoin. It could also be things like creating a clip from this, spending some of your time. Uh, it could also be a talent. You could uh, correct me on some of the things that I've said. Perhaps I've said something wrong or inaccurate. Leave a comment wherever you want. Um, I prefer it through a boostergram, but if you want to hit me up on Twitter or Instagram or any of those places, please do so. And I really just got to say, Bitcoin's exciting. Bitcoin's super fun. Um, I'm really loving every aspect of, of my interactions with it so far. And I really hope you do too. And I really do hope you have a fantastic Bitcoin day wherever you are in the world. Karen out.